Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 416. As our regular listeners can tell, it is opposite day, and I just started the podcast in, I hope, not a completely awkward and unprofessional manner, because that's probably like the third one I've ever started like that. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're going to be talking about my experience, specifically with children with ADHD and how we've been handling quarantine and virtual schooling and life in general. I know this has been a question a lot of you have asked, especially as we get ready for school. Um, although now that I say that I'm like, Sarah's kids are probably in school because it's like the beginning of August, but not quite. They actually delayed, they delayed our start date by two weeks so that all of the teachers could get uh, training on all of the virtual platforms that they're going to be using. So they actually start by the time this podcast goes live, I guess it's about a week and a half. Um, but yes, we are ran- we are certainly in the ramp up to school in our in our home. And I know even those here in Virginia, we were supposed to start at the end of August, and now we're starting, like you, two weeks later, the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know my personal friends are looking at okay, how do I set my children up for success and set myself up for success um, more so than they were kind of the last quarter of last year, because that we knew that that was a finite time or we thought, right. And now we're looking forward and we can't really say that. And so um, we're going to talk about how um, our family has worked with um, setting ourselves up for success. But that's why I was going to say, but Sarah has a listener question. I was like, wait, I'm, I'm still doing the transition role. Um, even on opposite <laughs> day, I can't make it work. Oh, no, it's, we're so, we're so, uh, creatures of habit. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Um, no, we actually have a really great question from Brooke, which I know when it came in, you and I talked about just how this is, this is an experience that I can't speak to because, um, neither one of my kids have ADD or ADHD. And I think that the, you know, there's certain challenges with how much we are multitasking as parents. Um, You know, Stacey, you and I were already work at home parents, but this is the working from home is a new experience for a lot of people. And now with kids doing virtual school, that's a new experience for a lot of kids. Uh, The support that kids need is very dependent on the school, the grade, right? The age, um, you know, the, the actual, you know, that actual kid. And so there's so many different moving pieces. And I thought, um, that Brooke's question was so, um, was such a great topic to cover that I think is going to be relevant, not just to, uh, listeners who have kids with, ADD or ADHD, but for parents in general who are listening to this, because I think there's going to be a lot of um, pieces of what you have to share in terms of how you are setting your children up for success and yourself up for sanity um, that is going to 
to transcend the specific challenge of ADHD. So why don't I read Brooke's question? That's not very opposite day. Um, but why don't I read Brooke's question? And then Stacy, you can take it away from there. So Brooke wrote, longtime podcast listener. Yes, I've stuck with you since the early days and love how your podcast has evolved over the years. I'm a mom of three boys, all with varying degrees of ADHD. My husband has more than a dusting himself, but is not formally diagnosed. Stacy, I loved your description of living in a house of 80 percenters. It made me giggle because I totally re- it totally resonated. I'd love to hear more about how you look after you maintain some semblance of a normal family life, deal with ADHD behaviors in public, and live in a house that's not a tip when you're surrounded by ADHD. In short, how do you not lose your mind with the challenging aspects? Knowing that the men in my life didn't choose this just doesn't cut it anymore. Many thanks, Brooke. Yes. <laughs> I, love that she, I love that she said her husband was more than a dusting. So, um... <laughs> Just to kind of introduce everyone to my experience with this, I have two children, one with ADD and one with ADHD, and my husband is formally diagnosed with more than a dusting. (laughs) (laughs) It also runs on his side of the family, so his brothers all have varying forms. Um, But what I do want to say about ADD and ADHD is that um, these are almost always paired with sleep and mood disorders, um, a propensity to hide the truth, usually out of guilt or shame, um, and a lot of uh, depression and anxiety as well. So when we think about an attention disorder, oftentimes, for example, ADHD means attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You think of a child who is just like, you know, running around the classroom or, you know, a, you know, a busy bee, so to speak. Um, and ADD as being someone who like just can't focus on a test. But it's a lot more than that. Um, with a formal diagnosis of these disorders, it affects more than just their ability to get distracted while they're unloading the dishwasher, (laughs) which happens every day. Um, But it's important as we talk about the context of this, because like she's saying, telling herself that um, they didn't choose this just doesn't cut it anymore. I think one of the things that is really important is to remind yourself that this is a medical condition and that it really can't be helped. And as much as we can do to modify the lifestyle factors and to set ourselves up for success and to practice some of the things that I'm going to talk about, likely a person in your life that you love has conditions that um, have some sort of aspect of this. Like I think uh, I would be surprised if there was a person who didn't know someone with depression at least some point in their life mm-hmm. um, or who wasn't sleeping well and was cranky as a result or, you know, different kinds of things. And so for me, when a boy Uh, And I'm not going to refer to who these people are just because they're at an age where that doesn't feel appropriate anymore. Um, But if a boy was to hide the fact that um, they had forgotten to do something, they were embarrassed about it. And even though I was like, but I know that you didn't do that. Like, let's just let's not lie about it because that that is really the problem. It's not the problem that you didn't do the thing. Um, And they continue to lie to me like that's a 
that's like a trigger for me, like uh, truth and um, uh, manipulation, feeling deceived. Those are things that like are um, super important to me. And so it's been hard to swallow that someone could look at me in the eyes and not tell the truth. The only way that I'm able to move forward with that is to tell myself this is a medical condition. And they it doesn't mean that they don't love me or don't respect me. It's that they're struggling so much with their own inner turmoil about frustrations with their disorder and how they feel about themselves that they're choosing this behavior as a way to protect themselves. And um, I don't, I don't have that feel right away, but I come to it. Um, And so I just kind of want to remind people of that, regardless of if it's ADD or ADHD, you're likely living in the home with someone that you're like over at this point. Like you love yeah. them, but you, you, you're done with your time with them in quarantine. And we're about to move into, you know, a, a much longer period. I know my kids have been playing outside or, you know, going to the pool in a social distance way. And um, this has been great for us. Um, I've had a little bit of fresh breath of fresh air. Um, But it might not be the case that you feel that way. You might not have been able to do those things. Or uh, maybe you didn't ever really feel get to your, you know, critical straw point with previous quarantine, it might be the case that you get there going forward, especially if your Mm -hmm. kids are going to be virtually schooling and all that stuff. So just prepare yourself and um, some of these tools are applicable to a spouse. Or, you know, even not in quarantine, if you have a family member that you maybe have a relationship that's strained with, um, a lot of these things can be helpful tools. So do you have any questions, Sarah, before we move forward? I'm a little bit awkward on the lead side. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think um, I, um, again, I sort of, this is, uh, you know, something that I understand like intellectually, scientific, like the science of it on paper, but I do not have the experience. And so, uh, I'm really glad that you, you have that to bring to this, to this topic. So, so off you go. Tons of experience for both of us. Um, okay. So first things first is to communicate. I think like this is my number one role in business at home Wherever it is, if you're not talking about something that is just making it worse, it's compounding it and it will eventually come out in not a healthy way. And so sometimes it's hard to say that you're frustrated with someone or to find the words. But for me, this is something I try to really encourage and especially to um, tell the boys like this, this is because um, you have ADD or ADHD and it's not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. And in Mm -hmm. fact, it can often be helpful to kind of point to an explanation of behavior. So, um, for examples, one of the brothers who doesn't have this condition gets quite frustrated when the others get distracted and don't do their chores. From his perspective, his brothers are, um, not holding up their fair share that he there's a feeling of inequality um and so by explaining that with a medical condition and not like blaming or shaming or anything like that um it's a way to help him understand 
yeah, like, yes, it's valid that you're frustrated. However, we need to have patience because your your brother has this medical condition. But that doesn't mean that your brother is not going to get called back to finish doing the chore that yeah. he needs to do. And It's I think, an explanation, not an excuse. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to talk about that a little bit more. But um, it is creating that ritual of okay, you got distracted, you did this thing 80%. Did you notice that you did this thing 80%? No? Okay, let me point it out to you and please go finish the 20%. You know, like, Mm -hmm. we need to have that full circle. So um, the next thing, like I said, is patience. And I know it's a hard one. Um, I'm there. I'm I'm there. (laughs) Um, But I expect to need to repeat myself at least twice or three times before I'm truly heard, um, particularly by one of my boys. Um, If he is not making eye contact with me, I cannot be sure that he heard me at all. So while I might have said something already, it's like I didn't say it because he didn't hear me. He was so distracted and in his own world that it's it's hard for me to imagine that he was in the same room with me and I said something and he didn't hear it, but he didn't. Um, and so what I do is I, for example, with chores, I set people up for jobs where it's consistent. Um, they have a list, they have things they can refer back to, to remind themselves. Um, and I set them up for success with things best suited for them. And I think, Sarah, this is kind of one of those things that really applies to everything, although communication and patience really applies to everyone. But <laughs> I often get asked, like, oh, my gosh, Stacey, your kids do chores. They make dinner. They do, you know, they do this. Yep. Like, how do you get them to do that? Um, so it's really, I think, about, as we said, setting people up for success in things that they can do well. So my child with ADHD who loves to pace, who loves to walk is like basically outside, I would say two thirds of the day, unless it's raining. Um, His job is to walk the dog and he loves to do it. He's successful with it. And um, he doesn't remember that he needs to do it at certain times. That's something that, you know, at 10 o'clock and three o'clock, I say, have you walked the dog? And he says, nope. And he puts on his shoes and he takes her for a walk. But mm-hmm. um, he's super good at that job. A job that he's not good at is unloading the dishwasher. Because <laughs> when he walks to do something, to put something away or whatever, he'll see something, shiny object, squirrel, whatever, and he'll get distracted. So um, that's where I need to have patience and remind myself it's not intentional. He forgot what he was doing and he needs to come back and do it. Um But that's a job that he chose. So each of my kids, we kind of like looked at everything that needed to be done in the house. And it was like, okay, each of the big boys, you're old enough, you can make a dinner. It's fair that you make one dinner a week. And that way I don't have to make seven. Do we all agree? Yes. Okay. Um, So one of them makes dinners on Tuesday. His He chose Tuesday because he always makes taco Tuesdays. He makes like taco bowls or... um, sheet pan fajitas, whatever it is. It's, it's always Taco Tuesday at our house. Um, and then the other boy will choose a, a day, like based on the meal plan or whatever. Um, or potentially like when I'm busy working, I might say to him like, hey, can you help me out and make dinner tonight? Um, that's my oldest who has culinary training and experience. And so I'm able to hand over a lot of things to him. Mm-hmm. Um which is great. So th- these, this is the thing, right, is I've 
raised my kids up to this point to have, to be independent, to feel empowered with different sort of things and to feel um, that they can succeed in the different things that I either ask of them or um, that they know that they've done before with my supervision. So um, as we have a new family member, the chores that that family member has are things that um, they've done before as well, like taking out the trash or um, more simple things that aren't necessarily unique to our home or the way that we might do things like putting away the dishes would not be something that he would be successful at because he doesn't know where all the dishes go. Um, And so I think it's really about if your children aren't doing these things right now about building the confidence and empowering them. And if chores are something that like become something you nag about, something you yell about, something that is frustrating on both ends, no one feels like they've succeeded on either side. You as a parent don't feel like you succeeded because you're exhausted and it would have been easier if you just did it yourself. And your kids don't feel success because they didn't get a sense of pride and empowerment that they did something. They instead feel like they got yelled at when they were trying to help you. And so, you know, whether that's like a sticker chart or whether it's, you know, whatever, I think it's important to find positive ways that you feel that you can succeed in whatever it is that you're doing. And so while we're talking about patience overall right now um, with ADHD, I think this has been critical to our success in quarantine in general because Matt's been working so much and I have never been a stay-at-home mom or a work-from-home mom. I have always been in corporate America. And so things like laundry and dishes and trash were not on my list of to-do items. So now I, I took on so much more when all of this happened because of the way that our roles just switched around the same time. And we approached it like we're a team, guys. We need we need dinner on the table, right? Yes. Okay. Let's be a team. Let's figure it out. What can we all do to make this happen? Because I still need to work. I still need to um, bring in income for our family, you, right? Like we all agree on mm-hmm. that. Yes. Okay. So here's here's what I can do. Here's the limits of what I can do. These are the things that are left. Who can pick those up for me? Um, and I, I think when you, at least for me, when I approach it that way with my kids, like we're a team, um, they're happy most of the time. Let me be clear. It's not all the time. Most of the time, <laughs> they're happy to help. And um, they also do get an allowance. Um, I think, Sarah, did I talk about Greenlight before? And This is not sponsored yeah, or anything. Yeah, okay. you did. I'm not sure if you were telling me. I think that was, um, I don't think you talked about it on the podcast. I think it was just a conversation that you and I had went, while, like while before or after recording that was something separate. Okay. So again, this is not, this is me telling you again, what we genuinely use and love. Um, we use an app called Greenlight and that's how we do allowance. And there's, um, chores built into the app that the kids are responsible for doing. And at the end of the month, the app will ask, has everybody done all their chores? And you as a parent can say, you know, yes, no, partial, whatever. And then, um, money is moved into an account that's kind of like PayPal or Venmo, but they have an actual card that is linked to that account that you can turn off at any time if it's um, lost or whatever. 
And you can also send a link to family members for gifts. And that's been super helpful in quarantine as well, because um, my kids have had birthdays, but we didn't celebrate physically. So their family members sent them um, money through that account. So mm-hmm. um, that is how I, I think also obviously motivating for my kids, knowing that um, not just a sense of pride on doing the chores and knowing that they're helping me, but also that they're getting compensated for their work. So that's how we've approached that. Um, and like I said, my, my patience with that is just reminding myself that um, if they get distracted or even like with my one that doesn't have um, ADHD, he sometimes gets frustrated and doesn't want to do chores because he's a teen mm-hmm. or a tween. Like that's just, that's how they are. And so um, it's, sometimes I get frustrated and don't want to exactly, do chores. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's really just about having patience like, Yep, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, don't yep. have unreasonable expectations because I think, Sarah, like you said, we're we're tired of this too, right? Like, they're, we're all human in this scenario. So mm-hmm. that kind of leads me to my next thing, which is to let some things go and to pick your battles. <laughs> like, um, I'm far less concerned with, like, the boys' beds being made or perfection than I am with them being kind to one another or if mm. they're genuinely being generally helpful um, around the house. And so I try to have that perspective. When I'm frustrated with something, I ask myself, like, is this really, is this the hill I want to die on kind of thing? You know, like, is this, is this really that important? Mm -hmm. Because just as much as um, you're feeling that way, especially if your kids are older, like I said, mine are teens and tweens. And so they're pushing the boundaries. They're learning what they can get away with. And I know that as a teenager, for me, the more my mom tightened the reins and the more she tried to limit and show control, the more I pushed back, right? Like I, that's my personality is I'm a Enneagram 8 rebel tendency questioner. And so for me, like the the more my mom tried to take control, the more I was like, oh, I'll show you who's in control. And um, (laughs) I just, you know me. um, I do. And, uh, and it's, it's funny sort of picture that as a, I'm just, because I also have uh, a teen and a tween and um, they are, uh, developing their independent selves. Uh, so I can completely relate to this, but I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing your adult personality concentrated into teenage rebellion and, um, your mom, did, did you ever give her a medal? Cause I have apologized several times. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, that wasn't like a good good time for anybody. And I just tried to remind myself of that. Like when I had kids and they were all born boys, I remember people saying to me, especially when I was pregnant with Wesley, oh, are you hoping for a girl? (laughs) (laughs) I remember looking at them and being like, no, I know what I was like as a teenager. I'm good with boys. Like I, I acknowledged it even at that age that, you know, it was before my kids were at this stage. Um, Mm -hmm that I was tough. And one of my children has those tendencies. One of my children is that. And I see the push and pull with Matt. And because that's kind of the um, mom relationship with us, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it manifests itself more um, 
with Matt because they're that's father son. And so that's where the push and pull is happening. And I have to interesting. Yeah, I have to say to Matt, sometimes I'm like, does that, is that really that important to you? <laughs> Could you let that go? Um, like, can he, can he just have that small win right now so that I don't have to give him a big win later? And I think that's kind of the mentality that I take with things. So for example, um, one of my kids likes to wear pajamas all the time. That's just, that's what, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in quarantine. And his, his pajamas consist of like, um, PJ pants and no shirt. So he's just living his life, living his best life in quarantine. He told me he's, he's waiting to see how many days he can wear pajamas. Like he's, he's doing a count. I don't know where he's (laughs) counting, but he's doing a count to see how many days he can wear pajamas. So, um, because his job is to walk the dog. Um, when it's time for him to walk the dog, he usually just grabs like his Uggs and a hoodie sweatshirt that he can zip up that he leaves by the door because they're there and it's easiest to put them on. Like they've been there since, you know, we went into quarantine in March or February when it was still cold. And so he just, that's what he leaves by the dog leash by the door and he just slips them on and he, you know, takes the dog on like not a short walk. We have like woods um, by our neighborhood, like a uh, county park and trail. And sometimes he'll take her in there with his hoodie, his fleece pants and his uh, and his Uggs in 100 percent, 100 degree heat index. And um, like, it's crazy. And so I've said to him several times, I'm like, are you sure you don't want to put on a T-shirt and your tennis shoes? It's pretty hot outside. And he's like, yep, I'm good. Um, and so he is marching to the beat of his own drum. He comes back and he's not overheated. He's not, you know what I mean? Like I've, I've made sure everything's fine. And, but several neighbors have said to me, oh my gosh, I saw your son walking outside in a sweatshirt and Uggs and fleece pants. What is going on? And I'm like, that's his summer uniform. Like, you know, from their perspective, they're like, I even had someone tell me, oh, I wouldn't let my child go out like that. And I'm like, well, that's not the battle that I want to pick with him. Like, I have so yeah. many more things that are important. What does matter to me is that when he's out there, we have an elderly neighbor next door. Um, sometimes she comes home with like groceries or bags or different kinds of things. And he and the other boys, if they're outside, offer to help her bring them in. And I've never even told them to do that. But she mentioned to me how thankful she was and how polite they are that they always offer to help her. And Mm -hmm. that is what matters to me as a parent. You know what I mean? Like, my son will eventually figure out that he's too hot in those clothes. (laughs) Like That's his, (laughs) that's his choice to make. But I feel like me as a parent, my job is to help help them become the best versions of themselves that yeah. they can be and shape them into kind, helpful adults. And I don't want to change them to fit just the mold that I want them to be. You know, like... like I don't know you, if you could. Yeah. But like you said, Sarah, like my personality is my personality. There's nothing that my mom could have done when I was a teen as hard as she tried to break (laughs) me. You know, I was not a wild horse that could be saddled. (laughs) And try as she might, she did not succeed. And it really put a wrench in our relationship for a very long time. 
um, until I was kind of a quote unquote successful adult, right? Until she saw that, like, you know, I, I was able to succeed on my own. And I think her concern was that I would tell off a boss or, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. And I probably did. Um, (laughs) And and that was a lesson I needed to learn. But, um, you know, so when I am working with my kids, whether it's that teenage behavior or whether it's the ADHD expectation, like I just kind of um, say to myself, is this, is this something, first of all, one of the things that I do is I ask myself, if this was a behavior that they were exhibiting as an adult, would it be appropriate and would it actually be beneficial? Because sometimes as the um, caretaker mm. for a child, you want them to just fall in line and do what you want them to do, but they might be exhibiting a behavior that is actually good. Independence, right? Are they advocating yeah. for themselves? You might not like what they're what they're saying, but are those actions something that's actually helpful for them long term? So that's where I try to ask myself those tough questions and remove like the personal bias perspective <laughs> a little bit as much as I can and choose to pick my battle, if that makes sense. Um, can I ask, so this is, um, I think independent of the ADHD part of it, but just the parenting part of it. So I think all of us parents find ourselves in sort of the heat of the moment, right? Where, um, our hackles are raised, uh, you know, kid does some, something triggering, right? And, um, we find ourselves as parents not being our best selves. Um, Do you have a a strategy that you reach for to pull yourself out of that particular, um, like that heat of that moment, right? So like, do you have a a go-to, a mantra or something that you can reach for to a breathing technique, something that like, okay, here's how I center myself so that I can be more intentional in how I'm responding to my child in this moment. I, I'm, you said breathing technique. I do try to do, um, breathing and like sometimes when it's just like starting to build up and overwhelm you, if you Mm -hmm. do that, um, deep breath through the nose, out through the mouth, and you just do kind of a, a deep pattern a few times in a row, Um, sometimes that just gives me also a break, right? Like just gives me 30 seconds before I kind of look up and say, okay, I understand that you're frustrated, um, whatever it is. I think the thing that's actually more effective for me personally and that my kids respond to and actually works really well for my husband as well, um, because again, this all relates to any sort of interpersonal relationships, um, is to come back to things, right? Like if it's not something that's super time sensitive, um, Mm. we will sometimes just be like, okay, you know what? This isn't going in a positive direction right now. Let's just take a break and talk about it again in a few hours. Or um, Matt does really well if he actually like goes outside and takes a walk. Like if he separates himself from um, what is physically happening um, and then when he comes back into it, he comes back into it kind of like a new person in, in a different space, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I I might do something like um, 
I don't know, self-care just really resonates with me. So if I'm taking a, a break, like if we say, okay, let's come back to this, I'll usually find myself in the bathroom. Um, and I think that's because that's the mom's defensive territory. (laughs) (laughs) I think early on when my kids were tiny, that was my safe space. And so um, it's still kind of my like retreat zone is I end up in the bathroom. So whether I take a bath or whether I just, you know, do a long toothbrushing and flossing and, you know, whatever it is I do in there, um, it seems to be that's my, that's my Zen state. Um, of course, also, you could, um, if you have like a way to work out at home, creating those happy hormones, um, basically any sort of thing where you can give yourself a break and then truly try to enact some of these techniques. Act your, ask yourself if, you know, what you're asking is reasonable, if what you're asking is um, you could have flexibility on, if there's any sort of small wins you could give the other person, can you understand their perspective? Um, And there's a lot of, like, I don't read self-help books, but I do a lot of um, reading online of examples of things or scenarios or um, different sort of disorders or... um, conditions that other parents have experience with that they might share, like how they handled a certain condition that you can relate to your own life. And so that could totally apply to teenage frustration and angst that could apply to toddlers who, you know, ruin your home with Sharpie markers, which also I've been there. Um, Right. So like whatever is happening to you, you're not alone. Parenthood applies to all of us. It's just like in this amplified Petri dish of, you know, quarantine. And it's just so concentrated. And you feel like you can't get a break that you've got to find a space for yourself for whatever that break is, whether it's sitting on the front porch and having your cup of coffee to kind of like decompress and think about or reflect on the day. I know a lot of people do journaling. I can't do any sort of that meditative stuff, but I can totally see how it works. My meditative state <laughs> evidently is flossing my teeth. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, I, I think that's one of the things that's been very challenging about quarantine is that feeling of losing um, alone time, like not like that. Just that personal, like I am just by myself in my own thoughts. And I'm not, there's like an overstimulation aspect um, where it's just like, for me, I have really had to work hard and we've had this sort of conversation as a family, like how do we respect each other's time on our own so that when we come together as a family, that is quality family time and we're not sort of like always um, just sort of like bickering with each other. And being able to find space where we each can sort of retreat and and have time where we're kind of all on our own has been really helpful to sort of diffuse any uh, diffuse the stuff that's meaningless, right? Like obviously there's bigger challenges that we still need to come back to and uh, have conversations around, troubleshoot around, but the meaningless meaningless stuff that's really just it's really just like uh, I have a mantra that's like, it's not about me, right? This is, you know, this person <laughs> being very, um, you know, annoyed and emotional. It's not something that I've done. This person needs, you know, uh, a nap, a snack. 
um, just some, you know, recharge time. Like there's, there's some kind of need that's not being met. And this isn't, this isn't, uh, some way that I've failed. This is an opportunity for me to help this person discover what it is that they really need right now. Cause it's obviously not you know, just yelling at me. That's obviously not the thing they need. Um, <laughs> Although so, sometimes I do feel that that's a good, like, outlet just to get it off your a chest. Little, a little catharsis every <laughs> yes. once in a while. Um, but that, ha- being able to to really um, have that conversation of, especially because we are a family of introverts. So all four of us are introverts. We all need recharge time by ourselves. Like, we all get more energy from time alone. Um, and so being able to respect that, cause we're also all very social outgoing introverts, which is a kind of a weird mix. I understand. Um, so we also still need that social time and we have a real struggle, all four of us, we have a real struggle to have, um, like kind and respectful social time if we haven't had recharge alone time. And so that's been one of the things that's been, especially during, the kids, I'm using air quotes for summer break because it doesn't feel all that different to the last quarter of um, last the last school year. But being able to fit that into the day, and we're going to have to, of course, rejig our entire schedule once the kids start school. That you know, and it's one of the things that we sort of talked about. Um, my kids are planners. Um, well, no, I'm a planner, and they somehow have either learned it's either nature or nurture. They've learned to be planners somehow. Um, and so having an idea of what to expect um, really helps them adjust better to change. And so we've sort of talked about they've released the the school schedules for the fall. And it there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, questions that I have about exactly how that's gonna work. And we won't probably won't know until we're a couple of weeks into it. And so right now we're talking about, well, if it's like this, then we could do this. And if it's like this, then we could do this. We sort of like talk through the different interpretations of the schedule and what that could mean for our daily routines. Um, we generally find like um, in our house, routine is really essential. Um, I was watching a really excellent interview with a um, – psychologist who was talking about, um, basically some of the, the challenges with quarantine and from a mental health perspective. And one of the things he said really resonated with me, which was that the brain doesn't know the difference between a big decision and a small decision. So it, 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 in terms of how stressful it is to make a decision, the, the brain doesn't really know the difference between what shall I make for dinner (laughs) versus like, what career path shall I take, right? Like the brain just like sees both of those as decisions that need to be made. And so the more we can live with routine and take decisions out because we do things the same at the same time every day, um, and the more we can sort of do, right, a set of planning for the upcoming week or something like that, take away all of those little decisions that need to be made every day, that that helps to kind of like decrease the decision burden on the brain and makes... um, the decisions that are remaining less stressful just because there's fewer, fewer to actually make. And so that's something that I've really internalized in terms of how we approach our time when every day kind of feels the same and everything kind of runs together. Um, how much routine can we still maintain, right? So we're still 
going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, walking the dog at the same time, mealtimes at the same time, like as many of those things that we can keep on a schedule as, as possible, we are. And it's been very, very helpful for us um, as, as a family just through quarantine. Not, not with the extra, I mean, we don't, again, have the extra challenge of family members with ADD or ADHD, but that has still been something that's been very helpful for us. I totally agree about having some sort of like schedule or list or plan or something that the kids can expect. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key with any child, regardless of age or um, conditions or, you know, like personality types, whatever it is. I think all humans want to know what to expect. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. if we go into a day and it's a complete free for all, like, unless you're at an amusement park, that's that's not how you want your everyday to go. And it feels like chaos oftentimes for most people. And so it doesn't mean that you need to have, for me, I do not have like a hour by hour kind of schedule. What we do instead is I I set the expectation of these are the things that need to be accomplished today. And these things need to be accomplished before you have screen time or before you do whatever. Mm. And it's kind of up to them the pace at which they do that. But there's not really much else for them to do. If they you know what I mean? Like they might um, hang out together and play a game of chess or they might read a book. None of that is bad in my, you know what I mean? In my yeah. mind as a parent, if those are the things that they're doing before they get to chores or, you know, whatever it is, they might go to the pool and that's okay too, because then they're getting exercise and they're getting sunlight and fresh air. So it's like, my rule is my schedule, my plan, my expectation that I set is more like a, these are the things that you need to accomplish today. And before you have screen time, you need to do them. Most of the time they get those done by like noon-ish, you know, like around mm -hmm. lunchtime. But sometimes they might, like I said, go to the pool and play together. And then, then it's like that screen time is only an hour in the evenings after dinner by the time they do those chores. And it, again, allows them to have a little sense of control, a little sense of independence um, that I think is really needed for kids sometimes as, as they're older. And that would look different for a toddler, but you can totally set a toddler up for um, success with a schedule or a plan or set the expectations of some kind, right? Like you can, yeah. you can have general zones. What we used to do with our kids is like certain days were different days when Matt was a stay-at-home parent, like certain days were field trip days, certain days days were, you know, whatever. And then they would come to expect that on Thursdays or whatever it was, they could ask to go, like they could choose which park they went to, or they could, you know, like whatever it mm -hmm. was. So I think it could really look different and tailored to a family. But I think that's such a good point that um, really having some sort of structure is key to people say for kids, but I really think that it's key for all humans. Like we know what our schedule is. We, we plan it in our head. A kid is not in control of that. And so they want to know what to expect. So the only thing I'd add, Sarah, is you were talking about like your family needing to have that alone time. And I think that also is important as we talked about. But I want to also mention that the time that you do spend together, you need to add in some quality, positive time. Yeah. Um, you need to proactively create that time that you're spending together, either playing games or telling stories, uh, you know, like, um, we like to tell stories of when the kids were younger or when we were younger and just kind of like laugh and giggle together. Um, or you can watch shows together. Like we did a, um, 
rewatch of the entire Marvel universe, right? Like we've kind of binged that. Um, And that was something that we would talk about each night before we would watch it while we were eating dinner. Like, oh, tonight's going to be whatever. And Wesley had actually not seen a lot of those films because he was so young. And so he's like the most obsessed with comic books. And while he'd seen the later ones, it hadn't occurred to us that he had missed the beginning. And so it was like this whole new experience with him. Like, oh, this one, you're going to meet such and such character. And, you know, we'd it was an opportunity to talk and connect and not just like sit down and watch TV, if that makes sense. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think that cultivating that positivity around the time that you spend together so that when you're together as a family, it doesn't feel like all you're doing is chores or all you're doing is nagging. Okay. So the last thing is kind of ties into all of this is creating a process. Um, that works for the child. So specifically um, in the context of ADD and ADHD, um, oftentimes by instinct, we do the things that work for us, like creating that list or having alone time, but Mm -hmm. your child might thrive in a different kind of environment. So it's really important to tailor and figure out exactly what is ideal for that child. I know that that's difficult and it's something that I continue to work on. I think it's our job as adults and as parents to kind of bend um, what we need to do to at least kind of meet your child in the middle um, to help them be the most successful as they can be. And um, then you can kind of adjust and tailor this over time. It'll get easier as they get older. Um, But for me, like I said, I, I have to expect that I'm not going to just say to my child, do this thing, and that my child's going to do this thing. That, right. to me, is how it works best. Right? <laughs> like It works easiest for me if I'm just like, I don't have time to deal with, you know, how you need this information right now. Like, I'm just telling you, go do the thing. Um, that's not setting anybody up for success. What I really need to do for my child to process properly what I'm asking of them is to kind of make sure that they're looking me in the eye. So I have to go to them and I have to squat down um, to their level. Now my children are getting taller. It's less squatting. It's great. Um, (laughs) But like sometimes if, if the child is very distracted and very kind of in their imaginative ADHD world, I may have to put my shoulders on his arms um, gently, calmly, right? Kind of like in a petting kind of way and say, okay, this is what I need from you please repeat what I just said. You know, like if he Mm. says, okay, I heard, okay, repeat it for me. Um, And that might seem ridiculous if you don't have a child with ADD or ADHD or another, there are a lot of other conditions where this technique works well, but then you know that they're hearing you, you know that they're acknowledging you. um, And it is a way to ensure that if they don't do it at that point, they're either being obstinate, which still happens sometimes with ADD and ADHD uh, children, right? Like sometimes my kid is just being obstinate and not doing right. his job versus forgetting. And this is a way for me to kind of like know that he heard me and that he needs to go do his thing. So if he's being particularly honorary, um, this is a technique that I mm-hmm. use it well so that I know I can say to him, I know you heard me and you chose not to do it. Now there's going to be consequences. Um The other thing that I really need to learn and adjust um, that's difficult for me because I'm the kind of person that I have a list in my head. And so I'm like, this, 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 this is what I need done. And you go do it whenever you need to do it. But those are the things that I need done. My ADHD child cannot remember those things. I cannot give him more than two instructions at once because 
he will get distracted before he gets to three, four, five on the list. Like he will mm, never remember. Yeah. He will never get to it. Um, so for example, sometimes it's just about putting things away, right? Like, you know how in your house, just people just set things down where they don't belong. What is that about? I'm, I am the kind of person <laughs> that's like super organized. And so when I walk through my house and I'm like, there's this black Panther on the dining table and there's this dirty socks on the sofa. Uh, like, I was going to say in our house, it is 80% of the time it is dirty socks. <laughs> exactly. We what? have huge dirty socks issues in this house. What is with dirty socks? Why are they everywhere? I don't know. But so when I'm walking through the house, if I find all those things, if I said to this child, put Black Panther away, put your dirty socks away in the laundry. So if I said, put Black Panther in your room, put your dirty socks in the laundry room and then come back and blah, blah, blah. He heard nothing after socks. Like literally it was like, okay, those are the things that I need to do. I need to do. I'm remembering. I'm remembering. Okay. Stop talking so I can go do those things. Like that's what's happening in his brain in order to retain that information. So he and I have come to an agreement where I will not give him more than two instructions at once. And he will report back after the second set of instructions. When he is done putting the dirty socks in the laundry room then he will come back and report for the next thing so we'll say to him and then report back like <laughs> that's our phrase um, and then report back and so that is not easiest for me right for me I don't want to have to say these things over and over again and be dealing with telling him how to pick up for that long but that is how he is successful and it has gotten better since he was three or four we've made a lot of progress and we will continue to make progress as he gets older but mm -hmm. you just kind of have to meet your kids where they are no matter you know what their um, difficulties are whether it's because they're an honorary teenager or whether it's because they're a toddler um, or whether it's because they have a, an attention deficit disorder. Um, so that's kind of been my um, my guide to success. I will say one of the things that's important as you communicate and have patience and do all these things is to really like have words for um, when things are going in a direction that is not positive. So when I see impulse control being a problem, so this is one of the things, right, is when I mentioned earlier that there are all these additional conditions that come with ADD and ADHD beyond just attention deficit. If I notice someone is um, retreating from anxiety or depression, or if I notice like an impulse control trigger starting to happen, I'll say to them, it seems like you're not in control of your body. Why don't you go take a break? Why don't you go take a walk? Why don't you go have some alone time? And then we'll come back and talk kind of like what we talked about. Um, but we have this phrase that we use that um, helps them recognize what I mean, what I'm talking about. And so I don't have to explain it each time. I don't have to point out the bad thing they did. All mm -hmm. I have to do is just say, hey, it looks like you're having a moment, right? Like you're, you're not in control of your body right now. Let's take a break and we'll come back together for lunch and, and talk about it. So I would suggest, we also have these code words. I don't, I don't know if you do this, Sarah, but we have code words in our family for when people are kind of being triggered for things. So um, if one of my kids feels that the others are ganging up on them. Um, we have a code word for that so that everybody just stops talking. And then we kind oh, of like have kind of like have a breather and then we come back to it, you know, cause we have family meetings and we have these kinds of things. And so um, just to kind of like say, Hey, I feel ganged up on right now. Um, and the rule is when the code words are used, 
we all stop. We can't, we can't keep talking because then it feels like someone's really piling on and really disrespecting mm. and not listening to you. Um, the other one that we have a code word for is when someone doesn't feel heard because they think it's really important that people feel validated yeah. when they speak and that they, um, that their, their feelings and their words are heard. And so if they feel like they're talking and people aren't listening or they're talking and people are talking over them or people aren't understanding what they're saying, like we have a code word for that where, you know, basically I don't feel heard right now. And the, the code words are bacon. Like the code word has nothing to do <laughs> with um, whatever, right? But it's a code word that in the context of our conversation, it really stands out. And then we all kind of like stop what we're doing and we... Um, you know, mind, mind our manners about whatever that is. Uh, we do not have code words. I am filing that away for future. future <laughs> yes. Um, so some of the things I want to kind of lead into that I know you can provide, um, input to are some of these lifestyle things. And I would say family meetings, um, are one of those lifestyle things, right? Like right. where we, um, we use these as a way to connect, get on the same page as a family. These are these are not places where we come together and I yell at people. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not a perfect parent. Like, I get angry and I yell sometimes just like everybody else. But the family meeting is not the place for that. Um, if things start to get frustrated and voices are elevated, blame game, all that kind of stuff, um, we try to pull it back a little bit as parents and we say things like, um, okay, tell me how you feel, right? Like use, use the, I feel words to tell me how you're feeling. Um, and that way it's not, um, it kind of takes the uh, pressure off of that blame or frustration or whatever. And then someone really feels validated and heard because they're talking about their feelings and then someone else doesn't feel like it's about them because right. someone is saying, I feel this, um, and airing these grievances, I think having a forum where everyone does feel like they can be heard is really critical for not letting it become like the snowball that gets worse over time. Right. Like that child that I have that doesn't have ADHD can say to his brothers, like, I feel really frustrated that I'm the only one that does the chores when mom asks the first time. And they can say, oh, <laughs> I can see how you would feel frustrated by that. Like, you know, that that sort of forum is um, really great. And we call family meetings for like everything. We call family meetings to meal plan so that everybody has input into the meals. We have family meetings to decide what movie we're going to watch. Like it is not a... Um, a negative, I, I try to make it be something that's not a negative so that when I call a family meeting, no one feels like, oh, great, I'm going to get in trouble. They have absolutely no idea what we're about to do. They just know <laughs> that we all need to talk together. We could be talking about whether or not we're getting dessert tonight or how we're all going to take on more household responsibilities. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it could be one of those two. No what idea what to expect. about dessert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so some other lifestyle and diet changes and supplements. We did talk about these, so I'm not going to go super into detail on episode 145, where we actually had Cole on the show to talk about um, his ADHD at a much younger age. So this show, we're talking a lot about our kids being, my kids being older. Um, so you can see a big difference in how it's manifested. At that point, we mm. had zero screen time because it created overstimulation for him. And you've heard me talk about screen time at this time being something that is earned later. Um, so obviously there's growth and progress that have happened over those years. Um, and so I, I just want to kind of like point that out. You can go back and listen to that. And we talked about 
um, different kinds of things at that time that we did. Um, one of those was provide relief for physical need of movement. So um, for a lot of kids with ADD and ADHD, using a yoga ball as a chair, having something they can fidget with and having breaks when they're seated for long periods of time are in- incredibly helpful um, because it it like builds up in their body. You know how sometimes you like get restless after you've been sitting for a long period of time and you just feel like you have to move your body, like your nervous system is just kind of like, I need movement. Um, That's what they feel like all the time. And so if you're not giving them that physical break, they can't even hear or learn or or anything of what you're saying because they're so distracted by that feeling that they have inside their body to move. Um, And I would say too that going gluten-free and um, really limiting dairy. So we did eliminate dairy for a long period of time. And now we've brought back high quality dairy in um, high fat forms in limited quality, limited quantities. So for example, heavy cream and coffee now, um, and no food dye. Those are the three things that I have found were the most helpful in terms of diet for my kids in terms of allowing them to be most in control of their bodies is how we phrase it, right? So the minute that my youngest has food dye, I made this like terrible life choice of letting them have Slurpees a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what came over me, but I just, I don't know. We were we were out and it was hot. We were coming back from a boat and it seemed like the best choice at the time. It was not. <laughs> it's just, I mean, just, it was not yeah. a good life choice. Like my son with ADHD really had difficulties being in control of his body for several days after that. Um, so one of my kids is super sensitive to food dyes yeah. and she hulks out. Like that's what yeah. we call it. We call it hulking out, but it's more like hulking out first and then uh there's like the the hang the food dye hangover is just crying yes it's just crying and crying and crying and she I mean she's super aware of it like it is never a good trade and she will if she's offered food at somebody's house I mean not that that's happened recently but at school again not that that's happened recently she'll be like does it have food dyes and she will not touch anything with red or blue yellow's not as bad Um, but she, yeah, she's super, and we discovered that that was the first thing we discovered on our, you know, very protracted health journey, which she was about, she had M&Ms for the first time and she literally became this like toddler. She was not quite two. Um, and it was just one of the situations I was in and, you know, somebody's office with my toddler in tow. It was like not ideal, uh, we had just moved um, to Atlanta. I didn't have anybody that could watch her, even though that would have been much better. And it was coming up to Halloween. So she was, yeah, she was not quite two. And we let, I let her have one of those little fun size things of M&Ms. And she just, li- she literally became this toddler pinball and started running into the wall, bouncing off and giggling, and then running into the next wall and bouncing off and giggling. It was the, I had never seen anything like that out of her before. Um, and then she got super angry and then she just started crying and she was like inconsolable for the rest of the day. And like, that still happens to her now. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, like, it's insane how, how much it impacts her behavior and, uh, like emotional well-being. Like it is a, she could probably handle gluten better than she could handle food dyes. I think it's it's really interesting how different things um, affect different people. So definitely 
the best way to gauge what your child is affected by is an elimination diet. I know mm-hmm. that there are so many people out there that will tell you about 50 bajillion different tests that they can run to see if your kid is allergic to something. That's completely different than how they react to something. So yeah. the only way that you know that your kid is going to hulk out to food dye is if they don't have food dye in their system for a while and then they have it and then you can see how they react so um and and just be prepared for (laughs) for it might be it might be a bad day i mean that's that's yeah don't do it uh, yes yeah don't 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 do it and then like here have some food dye go to school yeah i mean this is also in the hypothetical future where there's school again yes and i know um we haven't quite mentioned, but Sarah and I both have school systems that are option at this point. Well, I'll speak for myself. My only option at this point is virtual only. Um, yeah, that's ours did, too. We did have the option earlier where they thought they were going to have in-person and virtual and you could choose. And I chose virtual only after much hemming and hawing for quite some time. I really wanted normalcy for my kids and I wanted social interaction. And then the more that I thought about it, I was like, you know what? I really don't think that they're going to have normalcy in school. I don't think it's normal to wear a mask in school. I don't think it's normal to be, you know, worried about making your teacher sick and different kinds of things. And I just thought at least if they're home, I can control the environment and, um, it's more difficult for me and I'm not sure how I'm going to get through it, but I'm just going to do one day at a time. And then literally a week after we made that decision, they went virtual only. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't have a choice anyway. So, so that said, um, the remaining things I know, Sarah, you have some science on are really kind of supplements that um, I have found to work. So we did a show dedicated on melatonin. If you want more information on that, go back and listen. But melatonin has been so helpful because adequate sleep is critical. And I mentioned kids with ADD and ADHD often have a difficult time sleeping, especially if they're on a stimulant medication. So um, even without a medication, though, it has been so useful for Wesley. Oh, I used his name. Um, (laughs) He gets anxiety at night, especially. Um, Sometimes, Sarah, I don't know if you remember, but we saw a uh, show at the Georgia Planetarium, and it was on black holes. And for a week Mm -hmm. after that, he could not sleep because he was sure we were all going to die in a black hole. And um, he just gets anxiety about different kinds of things, um, especially in quarantine. I think we all have anxiety about COVID and Mm -hmm. the changing of the world and all that kind of stuff. And so melatonin has been helpful. Um, He goes through phases where he like needs it almost every night and then he doesn't need it for a while and then he needs Mm -hmm. it again. Uh, Probiotics, because as we've talked about, gut health is health. (laughs) Health (laughs) is everything. I'm not going to go into any more details on that. You know how we feel. Um, He takes Just Thrive probiotics just like I do. Um, And then, um, as I mentioned recently, fish oil and coffee. I think you've got some information on that because we've gotten separate questions based on those two things. So we've had dedicated shows on melatonin and probiotics. Yeah. and I'll let you just give a little, not a little, but I'll let you have input on the uh, the science and the factors of the coffee and the fish oil. Um, yeah, I think these are the the two pieces. Coffee sort of needs an update since episode 145, which uh, was like way back in 2015 when we actually covered that. Um, and we haven't actually talked about, um, we sort of mentioned it last week um, about 
fish oil supplementation for ADHD, but we didn't really go into any of the science of, um, of like why that might be helpful. And so there's actually been enough studies now looking at fish oil supplementation as a um, like primary approach to ADHD and ADD. There's been enough science now to actually have some really good systemic reviews and meta-analyses, um, which uh, just to take a step backwards in science, um, we have this sort of process where we build um, we build a base of evidence. And so it starts with these sort of epidemiological studies, right? Observational studies where you kind of go like, oh, hey, look, right? For, for in this example, we had this um, studies showing that um, children and adolescents and actually adults too with ADHD um, tend to have much lower levels of the long chain omega-3s, especially DHA in their blood cells um, than what would be, you know, controls, right? So age matched, match everything else that you possibly can, people without ADHD. Um, and then you go, okay, well, maybe that's important. Um, so the next sort of layer of study is mechanistic studies, where you try to understand if that link is somehow causal, right? If there's some kind of uh, pathway that is actually meaning that there, the link is meaningful, right? So does that lower level of omega-3s, is that actually somehow driving the uh, behavioral challenges with ADHD? Is it driving the inattention, right? Is is it actually important or does it just happen to be there? Is it a marker? Um, so then you sort of build up mechanistic studies. That's where um, animal studies come in or cell culture studies. Sometimes that can be done in humans like biopsy studies, depending on exactly what we're talking about. Um, and then you start to build intervention studies. So intervention studies are, uh, okay, so I understand mechanistically what's happening with uh, the neurons and how, and actually in the case of ADHD, um, where omega-3s are really important is actually in synaptic signaling and neurotransmitter regulation. Um, and so we kind of go, okay, we've got these mechanisms now built up over all of these, you know, hundreds and thousands of different studies. Now let's intervene. Let's give the supplement, correct that deficiency and see if we can see benefit. And as you get then a whole pile of different studies that ideally are randomized control trials, um, then you can do a meta-analysis, which is to pool the data of a whole pile of different studies. Um, to look at the like overall effect. And then once you kind of get those, then the, the final piece is what's called a system, systematic review where you look at that entire body of scientific evidence. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be some papers here and there that show no effect, right? Like there, that's included in all of this because what you're trying to do is understand the body of scientific literature. So to say that there's been enough research to have a systematic review and meta-analysis really means that this is quite well understood. That doesn't mean that the landscape can't change with more research, but it means that we've got enough to be able to start making these big conclusions and generalized statements. And that's where we're at with the research on omega-3s and ADHD, both from the, we, we see that actually there's um, researchers that actually think that um, a deficiency in those long chain omega-3s, DHA and EPA, 
um, at that's probably combined with some kind of genetic um, predisposition uh, at a particular time in development, right? So it's probably somewhere in in there um, that. Um, and there may be some other factors, right? Like vitamin D deficiency can probably is probably a player in here as well. Um, that is driving the neurotransmitter imbalances that are causing the behavioral manifestations and cognitive cognitive manifestations of ADHD. And studies have shown that supplementation of doses of at least 500 milligrams per day. Uh, very significantly improves both the clinical sim symptom scores as well as uh, cognition um, measurements um, that are associated with ADHD. So it, that includes things like parental reports of total symptom scores, inattention, hyperactivity. There's a couple of different scales that are used to measure ADHD called the Connors Cognition Scale and the Connors DSM-4 uh, Inattention Scale. Um, and also in terms of cognitive performance. Interestingly, in errors of omission and commission, right? So I forgot something or I added something that wasn't there, um, which is actually different than things like memory or information processing. Those aren't impacted um, by omega-3 supplementation. And actually, there's growing literature showing that this may be important in adult uh, management of ADHD as well, although there's certainly at this point more research in uh, children and adolescents than adults. So the, the body of literature supporting fish oil supplementation as a primary um, strategy for ADHD. Is, um, but we did have this question from last week's episode from Sharon, and I'm just going to read it and, and jump right into um, replying to this because it's very relevant right here. So Sharon wrote, uh, in your recent podcast, you discussed your doctor's recommendations to increase your son's fish oil. You said he was taking Rosita cod liver oil, and I was immediately concerned. Fish oil and cod liver oil in particular have some major differences. Cod liver oil is extremely high in vitamin A, and it can be toxic in large doses, and cod liver oil has a large dose according to WebMD. You probably know this, and they're doing just fine, but I wanted to give you this info just in case. Um, and so Sharon is absolutely right that there is a, a diff big difference between fish liver oil, any fish liver oil, and fish oil. Um, and it it's because of, right, total fish, it's really the oil from the muscle versus the oil from the organs. So they're both very high in omega-3s, um, but fish liver oil has a much higher vitamin content. So it typically has more vitamin, all of the fat-soluble vitamins. Um, in particular, it does have more vitamin A. It also has a, quite a, a good dose of vitamin D, um, and it has a little bit of um, E and K as well. And um, and there's, uh, this is, I mean, this is actually one of the reasons why I choose cod liver oil because vitamin A deficiency or insufficiency, dietary insufficiency is extremely common. A teaspoon of Rosita extra virgin cod liver oil has about uh, 3,900 IUs of vitamin A. That's 78% of the adult daily value. It also has 395 IUs of vitamin D, which is 98% of the adult daily value. Um, so that is true that a uh, non-liver oil, fish oil, has these fat-soluble vitamins, um, where, or wait, a liver oil has these fat-soluble vitamins, whereas a non-liver fish oil has much lower levels. 
Um, but there is a really interesting common misconception about vitamin A toxicity. So um, I think this confusion comes from the fact that the U.S. Institute of Medicine daily tolerable upper level uh, intake for vitamin A has been set quite low. So um, some vitamins have this, um, what's called a UL, an upper level, um, where they basically say that staying below this level uh, will mean that you're in a safe zone to avoid toxicity challenges for 98% of people, right? Just like the daily value is supposed to be sufficient to meet the nutritional needs. Well, it's supposed to be sufficient to not have symptoms of deficiency for 98% of people. That's how they're defined. And so the um, upper level for vitamin A um, is it's different depending on age and gender. But for example, for children 9 to 13, it's about 5,600 IU per day. And for adults, it's about 10,000 IU per day. Um, and that is set based on a couple of different things. So they're, the things that they're looking at to set the upper level is basically three criteria. Changes to bone mineral density, which actually has more to do about the balance between vitamin A and D and K2 than it does about the absolute amount of vitamin A. Um, teratogenicity, so birth defects, um, and uh, which again is seen in very, very high levels of sup supplemental vitamin A, of um, man-made vitamin A, not whole food forms. And then abnormalities in liver health, um, which is data that is currently confounded by all the other things that impact liver health, like uh, alcohol consumption, hepatitis, um, medications that are processed in the liver, and that could be something as simple as acetaminophen and pre-existing liver disease. So the data that's going into the UL uh, can be, it's basically very narrowly defined. Um, what's really important to understand about vitamin A is that toxicity is extremely rare in the context of whole foods. It's basically been seen in um, consumption of uh, like seal liver, um, polar bear liver, these um, forms of liver that, that literally can have millions of units of vitamin A in a very small amount. Um, and it's typically seen in the context of supplementation in conjunction with vitamin D deficiency. And the reason why that's important is that vitamin A and vitamin D compete for the same receptors. So they actually protect against the toxicity of each other. But when you're consuming a large amount of both vitamin A and vitamin D, that does increase our need for some other nutrients, especially things like vitamin K2. But they, it is really important to, um, if you were going to take supplemental vitamin A, not a food-based supplement, um, you would definitely want to know your vitamin D status before you jumped into high-dose vitamin A if your doctor wanted to do that for some kind of therapeutic reason. But actually, vitamin A toxicity requires very high doses of vitamin A. So um, in children, we see vitamin A toxicity, acute vitamin A toxicity. So you took vitamin A as a single dose. Um, that requires something on the order of like 300,000 IU per day. Um, that's usually seen as an accidental uh, dose. Um, and again, in adults, we've really seen this uh, again with like explorers um, consuming bear liver, having you know no idea that it's so crazy high in vitamin A and they're consuming millions of units of international units of vitamin A. 
chronic vitamin A toxicity is where it builds up from um, higher doses slowly over time. That's still typically seen um, at doses of somewhere like 100,000 IU daily for several months. Um, and so uh, taking you know, a teaspoon of cod liver oil that has 4,000 or just under 4,000 IU per day is nowhere in, nowhere in the vicinity of the levels where we actually see chronic or acute vitamin A toxicity. That being said, again, you know, if, if you're going to be taking higher doses of vitamin A, it is really important to know what your vitamin D status is and make sure that you don't have vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency. We've also talked about vitamin D extensively on the show, and it's the same thing here, right? Test, don't guess. Um, and retest and make sure that if you're taking vitamin D3 to address vitamin D deficiency, that you're dialing in your dose for you for that time of year. You don't want to overshoot the mark, but you want to make sure that you're taking enough. So it's another reason to, to be aware of your vitamin D levels, but it is also very good that, um, Rosita extra virgin cod liver oil has some vitamin D it's probably not enough to fix insufficiency for people. It's only about 400 IU in a teaspoon, but it will help to protect against any particular issue of high vitamin A consumption because of that competition for the same receptors again. Not that you could drink a couple bottles of it and that, you know, don't do that. That's what I'm saying. Don't drink two bottles of cod liver oil. Um, but the vitamin D also, right, has, uh, as I mentioned, there there is a growing body of scientific literature showing that vitamin D insufficiency and deficiency is associated with ADHD and that supplementation. This has been mostly studied as an um, adjunctive therapy. So they're giving um, pharmaceuticals and vitamin D supplementation, but that has been shown to improve ADHD symptoms as well. I love that we're back at whole foods, synergistic forms, show mm-hmm. us how this all works. And so I appreciate you taking the time. It's another a failure of supplements, right? Like, yeah, we think we know so much until we put things in a pill and take huge doses of it and then go, whoops. Yeah. And I, I truth be told, I got that question. I immediately forwarded it to Sarah with like an emoji of big eyes, like what? <laughs> She's like, it's okay. It's okay. Here you go. Here's the info. Like, all right. Um, and then you had an update on coffee. I did. So I was really interested to see what new research had been published since we did episode 145. Like that was, it feels like a million years. I realized it was like, oh, it was like five, five years ago. Uh, so that is a million approximately. Um, and what was really interesting to me was to see that there's, there's certainly more animal studies looking at caffeine and, um, ADHD. So to sort of quickly recap for anybody who just, just wants to just give me the cliffs notes, um, caffeine was actually first suggested as a management tool for ADHD in 1973. And there've been a variety of studies that have looked at either caffeine pills or coffee for symptom management. Um, most of those studies have been uncontrolled. Um, so know that mo- some of them have placebo, not all of them. Um, the really, really tough studies to blind. They've mostly been relatively small studies, um, but they're also supported by this, you know, growing, amount of mechanistic data to show 
how caffeine could be beneficial in ADHD. Um, so caffeine, the, the way that it works, caffeine is psychoactive for all of us. Um, we just get so accustomed to our daily dose of it that we don't necessarily notice the effects. What it does is it binds with two different adenosine receptors um, and blocks them from actually binding with adenosine. So it's the adenosine A1 and the A2A receptor. And this is what makes us feel more alert. So adenosine is a metabolic byproduct of cellular metabolism. And because of the blood-brain barrier, it builds up in our brains during the day. And it's bind when it binds with the adenosine receptor, that's what makes us feel sleepy. So it's part of our um, homeostatic sleep needs. So it's how we, like how our bodies understand that it's, that we're sleeping and it's time to go to bed is this buildup of adenosine binding with the receptors. Coffee blocks it. It doesn't change our need for sleep, but it changes our perception of sleepiness. And that's what gives us that sort of like alert feeling by blocking these receptors. But there's several downstream effects on neurotransmitter systems that are really relevant in ADHD particularly uh, dopamine, um, the norepinephrine, and the glutamine um, systems. And so because there's these downstream effects, those are um, those sort of like indirect effects of caffeine are probably where the clinical value is because there's um, dysregulation of all of those neurotransmitter systems in ADHD. And so studies have shown basically that uh, caffeine consumption, it works best as a sort of low dose. High dose does not seem to be better. Um, so studies show optimal doses are somewhere around maybe 150 milligrams of caffeine per day. Um, that's according to a, a meta-analysis that was done way back in 2000. Um, higher doses, definitely less clinically effective in children, um, although maybe appropriate for adults. It's not enough um, data to really be able to, to say that for sure yet. Um, and so the studies show that caffeine is more effective than nothing and probably not as effective as various medication options for ADHD. But of course, the side effects of caffeine consumption um, tend to be much more tolerable than some of these medications have um, really undesirable side effects um, and higher rates of adverse reactions. So um, where we're at in terms of of the understanding of that, there's a little bit more call for um, coffee to be sort of reconsidered a um, first course of action in treatment. So maybe combine this with something like fish oil, addressing vitamin D deficiency, right? So address the nutrient deficiencies that are contributing to the neurotransmitter imbalances, and then... Um, use caffeine as a, as a management tool, um, because of its impacts on those same neurotransmitter pathways, um, as a first course, right? So there, that doesn't mean that it would work or be sufficient for every person, but there is a little bit more call for that in the scientific literature. And there've been a couple of interesting animal studies that have added to the mechanistic case for caffeine as a, as a treatment. And actually one really, really fascinating one that was just published in April, um, where they actually looked at how caffeine impacted um, the the morphology of neurons. So they were actually looking at neurons and cell culture and showing that um, 
So these were neurons from a from rats with ADHD. Basically, there's an animal model of it, um, and uh, what they showed was that the caffeine actually um, rescued the the outgrowths of those neurons. So um, it basically meant that those neurons could signal more effectively with their neighboring neurons with the caffeine compared to like the ADHD neurons by themselves. So the, that's one of the things that happens is this um, change in morphology of these neurons, especially from, I think it's from the, um, from the frontal, uh, frontal cortex region, I think is specifically where they were from. And, um, and so that is like a, a really new piece of information showing that um, it's not just caffeine's impact on neurotransmitters, but actually on neuronal health, um, which is super, super cool. Um, so that was a very, very interesting piece of information. And there was also a paper published in 2018 um, that showed that um, caffeine could actually be used to treat the motivational symptoms of depression and ADHD. Um, and that this was actually um, through, again, sort of the, a direct impact on neuronal health. It actually showed some potential for um, recovery of spinal cord injury, which was really fascinating. So this one paper was really looking at, again, sort of how um, caffeine could impact neuronal health and like the broad applications of that in neuropsychiatric disorders. So I think, um, you know, and this was just picking out a few really recent papers. If you look at the body of scientific literature over the last five years, there is still the same need for like big scale randomized placebo controlled clinical trials that that need still exists. That hasn't changed, but the mechanistic understanding has become more robust and has made a stronger case for somebody to go and do those big clinical trials. So that was, I thought, pretty exciting research. Very cool, actually. Um, and I would say, too, I have found it to be um, more effective and less effective at different times for the kids, different doses that we've talked about, right? So I think mm -hmm. it is one of those things that um, as you are looking to help your um, ADHD, particularly, I think, ADHD, not ADD, but it, maybe, maybe I'm just wrong and a different ADHD person would have um, effect. But I think for, for us, um, it really is one of those things that fluctuates, like the need for melatonin. Um, and I think that it does have to do with, Sarah, like you're saying, the other things that we're doing in their life, um, the other supplements and the other lifestyle factors, how much they're sleeping as to how much caffeine they might need. Mm. Um, if that makes sense, like, like you were saying, if we have all the other things dialed in, it's not really needed as much. And so that leads me to kind of the last question that everyone asks about this, which is medication. Um, I will say we were fortunate in that none of our boys have gone on medication beyond just the lifestyle and supplements that we've talked about. Um, Stimulant medication for ADD and ADHD often has side effects that I really am trying to avoid. Matt has been on them from a young age and they're very difficult. That is impossible to come off mm -hmm. of as an adult. Um, he tried and we were able to lower his dosage, but he wasn't able to function in a way that he was happy with or that I was happy with. Um, 
and it's just very difficult. Like I, you know, it's very frustrating to not be able to remember something and to feel like, gosh, why can't I do that? You know what I mean? Or why did I get distracted or whatever? And when it comes to having a job, that's not something that's really uh, tolerated either, right? Like you need to be able to do your job and focus on it. So, um, what is unfortunate is those side effects become more dangerous over time. Um, as you're older, um, you can look into them yourself. But uh, different kinds of things like blood pressure and risk to the heart are very serious because you've been on a stimulant your whole life. Um, yeah. And so definitely look into that if you're considering medication. There is, as was recently presented to me, a kind of newer alternative, not all, not alternative. It's it's not like, you know, they discovered it in Germany. Um, it's a non-stimulant that um, has been shown to um, effectively treat some cases of ADD and ADHD. And so if you are, especially now that your children are home, um, feeling like you need additional support where maybe a teacher had outside resources like my um one of my sons has an IEP, which is an individualized education program. So his teacher has additional resources available to her through the school of people who specialize in supporting that. And now you're home with your kid and you don't have that. You don't, you don't have a professional education um, in being a teacher, nor do you have the specialization for being, um, uh, you know, support services for them. And you're like, I I want my kid to thrive. My kid is frustrated. My kid's not able to focus. I'm frustrated. I need support. Um, you could potentially look into um, ask your medical professional because you will need a prescription for this. This is not something just go grab off the shelf. Um, but there is a um, non-stimulant medication that can now potentially be used. And I will say what is also really great about it is that it is not... Um, Gosh, what do they call the medication, Sarah, where it's um, it's not a controlled substance. There you go. Oh, yeah. So that's also one of the frustrations with Matt's medication is it's this, you know, it's controlled, which is a risk for teenagers to, you know, be in possession of a controlled substance that could be abused. Um, but it's also just really difficult to get access to. Like, you can't just, like, get it mailed to you. You know, it's this whole process every month to make sure that it's safe to get So. Mm. I think I covered everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, it was a uh, wide ranging um, episode in terms of strategies. But I think that's the take home to me is that it's not just one strategy, um, that it really is a sort of whole life, whole family approach to um I mean, that also isn't just applicable to, you know, living in a household with family members with ADHD. I think, um, I think that's one of the reasons why I was really excited to tackle this. Um, as somebody who it's not directly relevant to me, that doesn't mean that these techniques are not right. These are all things that can make, even if you're, um, just trying to adapt to quarantine life and changes, disruptions in your own daily routines, that these are all strategies that can still be used and put into place in terms of, um, you know, basically just setting, setting us all up for success um, in this, in not just this new environment, but beyond, right? So there will be a time where we're not all stuck in our houses all the time. And even when we get there, 
right? Things like choosing our battles and, um, uh, you know, setting, setting up ourselves and our family members for success, self-care, um, you know, patience, like all of those things are still relevant. And I think, um, it's nice to have an episode where we kind of tackle the broad range of, of strategies because it's grounding and it helps to, um, I think it helps to sort of reflect and go, okay, I got check, check, check. I got these. Here's, here's where I can, um, tweak or, um, you know, put more energy towards whether that's family meetings. Like there's going to be some piece of this that I think will resonate with every listener as a, aha, that's a cool idea. I can, I can do that. Um, and sometimes even the pieces that resonate are the no way I would never do that. Right. Sometimes what, you know, what works for one person or one family is not always what's what works for someone else. I was I remember um, my my two daughters are incredibly different just in terms of their temperaments and the parenting strategies that have worked for both of them. And when my first daughter was a toddler having massive temper tantrums, um, I got a lot of unsolicited advice. And one of the things that I realized once I had my second, like more even keel, like just easygoing kid was that the advice that I was getting was not tailored to my, to me or my child. And I needed to figure out what worked and, um, and I needed to, to experiment with a bunch of different strategies to figure out what was going to be the best thing for me and for her, right? And as individuals, and that this unsolicited advice was very much of a, oh, you must be doing something wrong as a parent. It was it was from that perspective because your child is having this temper tantrum. And it didn't recognize that different kids have different needs and different strategies work with different children. And so I hope that even if you've listened to this and you didn't find something helpful in this checklist, uh, you found something helpful in um, in a in an opposite way, right? So that you heard something and went, well, that's not applicable to my family, and it will help you to reflect on what alternate strategy may be. And, and so I just kind of want to also um, acknowledge that so much of this is um, broadly applicable. And yet so much of it needs to be individualized. And I think the most important thing is again, in this really challenging time to give all of ourselves some grace, um, because we're being challenged in ways that, you know, no, like that's completely new. (laughs) This has never happened in human history. Um, you know, even if you look at the 1918 flu pandemic, the world was so different back then, right? Our challenges now are not the same challenges that they had back then. And so I think it's okay to um, remind ourselves that um, it's a process and it's okay if it's not easy. I agree. I think one of the other things that I just want to kind of summarize is that I think we as parents oftentimes or caretakers or you know guardian whatever your role is as a um, 
aunt and uncle or what you know whatever your role is I think oftentimes we want things to be perfect and rosy and we can you know put it in a package and a nice bow in it and we can feel proud to tell people when they ask how it's going to be like really great um but it's the difficult times that we kind of push through where we learn and grow the most right mm-hmm. it's it's the uh comfort zone philosophy right when you get out of your nothing good ever comes of being in your comfort zone or you know whatever that phrase is right like no growth happens inside the comfort ground inside the comfort zone and so um, if we let our children learn how to um, do things that they might not know how to do right away or do well, um, if we teach them how to constructively communicate their frustrations, um, that will help them as an adult in a positive way. If they don't learn yeah. how to do those things, if they learn how to bottle things up, if they if they think they need to just, you know, suck it up and do whatever, um, then as an adult, they're kind of stuck not knowing how to positively and constructively communicate with others. And I think that's been really important for me as a, as a parent is to remind myself, like, I'm teaching them how to do this better in a, as an adult. Like, I'm taking the hits now so that when they're an hmm. adult, someone else doesn't have to. So, um, and it's like you said, Sarah, that really applies to any relationship that you have, not just like parent, kid. I think, you know, really learning how to constructively communicate with other people Um is a skill that almost all adults either want or need to work on. And it's something that even, you know, where I am in my life, I'm learning how to do better, right? Like I'm, it's something I'm still um, practicing myself. So I know that my kids still need to practice it. Anyway, thank you for our listeners for asking these questions. And um, I hope that it was helpful. As I said, I'm you know, I'm just a mom doing these things. I'm, I'm also a foster mom at this point. And so um, I'm, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Everybody is. And that's part of what being a parent is, is kind of like owning up to, I'm not going to be perfect. Every day is not going to be great. Um, I will have good days and bad days and all those things. And that's okay. That's why we're a team and we're here to support each other and have patience and understanding and all those things. So I hope that um, it inspires you to be kind of um, at least honest with yourself about those things and to maybe hold a family meeting and to say to your loved ones when you need to, like, I am not in a good state right now and I could really use help, (laughs) Um, whatever that help looks like to you. So thank you, listeners, and we will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly milk episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.